0: Are you a high performing real estate investor who's looking to further elevate your performance? If so, download our free guide, Raising the Bar Five Steps to Elevate Your Habits by joining our insider network at elevatepod.com. This guide, created by yours truly, has the power to put your transformation on autopilot and exponentially change your trajectory. Go get your free copy now at elevatepod.com.
1: Welcome to Elevate the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing.
0: Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser, I'm so thankful to have you here and I am blessed and grateful to have the great David Heinemeier Hansen on the podcast today or as he is affectionately known as DHH, one of the greatest tech entrepreneurs across the world who's been at it for decades and decades. And I'll tell you what, today's episode is filled with philosophical truth and wisdom that you can apply to your life and your business immediately. And I'm telling you that if you want to live a life of fulfillment, today's episode is for you. You're going to learn more about stoic philosophy. You're going to learn more about how to effectively work remotely. If you maybe you've been placed in a position throughout the pandemic that you have to collaborate with your team, you know, not in person, but perhaps remotely, you're going to learn how to take that to the next level from someone who has been doing this for over 20 years. And he actually literally wrote the book remote, which is actually right behind my shoulder here. If you're watching on YouTube, I highly recommend the book, but also highly recommend you kind of engage in this conversation because man, there's just so much to learn here. There's so much to learn about the persistence and the the compound interest of David's commitment. You're going to learn about all of that today and so much more. You're going to love this conversation. I have no doubt about that. My name is Tyler Chesser, and this Elevate podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high-performing real estate investors I'm your host and I'm a professional real estate investor and high performance coach. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. Let's raise the bar together. We're going to raise the bar in terms of our own fulfillment, in terms of our own lifestyle. And guess what? We're not going to defer that. We're not going to say someday, maybe, or one day down the line, I'm going to have this, that, and the other. Let's make that today. And I think if, if that resonates with you, today's episode is for you. And um, by the way, I've asked this a few times recently. I want to ask again, I would love for your feedback. What do you love about Elevate Podcast? What's awesome about Elevate? What is some other content that you like to hear? What would you like to hear more of? right? Just send me a direct message on Instagram at ElevatePod. And I would love to hear your feedback. Who is it that you want to hear from? Uh, You can also send me an email at info at ElevatePod.com. I want to know the good, bad, the ugly. We want to get better. We want to improve. I want to listen to you. I want this to be something that you can own as well, because Elevate Nation is all about collective community. It's all about greatness. It's all about designing a life. It's about, you know executing our strategies and, and living now and also living into the future and, and allowing beauty to compound in our life. And so I would love to hear your feedback. So please, please, please send me an email at info at elevatepod.com or send me a direct message on Instagram at elevatepod. pod. And uh, also I want to remind you the fee for listening today is just to pay it forward and share it with one person. If this is your first time listening to Elevate Podcast, welcome. We are so grateful to have you here. And I guarantee you're going to get a ton of value from this podcast today and so many others. So go check out all the other episodes of Elevate Elevate Podcast, whatever is going to resonate with you, because we're going to continue to bring the heat. Um, But the fee is to pay it forward. Share this either on social media, share this via text message, email, email, uh, or share this in person. Tell somebody to look up Elevate because that's how we're going to continue to bring amazing guests on this podcast. That's how we're going to continue to coalesce the resources and our team to give this amazing content. So please pay it forward. We ask that you refer us to others because uh, we're going to continue to bring the heat. So thank you for that. Also, if you have not done so already, please give us a rating or review and subscribe or follow Elevate Podcasts from wherever you listen or watch podcasts. It is very, very important to us, and I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for all your support. And as we dive in, guess what? I have the great David Heinemeier Hansen on the podcast today, who is the co-founder of Basecamp and a New York Times best-selling co-author of Rework and Remote. He's also the creator of software toolkit Ruby on Rails, which has been used to launch Empower Twitter, Shopify, GitHub, Airbnb, Square, and over a million other web applications. How epic is that? I mean, how many of those platforms have you utilized in your life? I can tell you, I've utilized all of them. And this is the level of value that, you know, of an individual that we're bringing today. He's originally from Denmark. He moved to Chicago in 2005, and now he lives between the U.S. and Spain. Today, we're talking to him from Copenhagen, and uh, he lives there uh, in Spain, actually, with his wife and his two sons. In his spare time, he enjoys 200 mile per hour race cars in international competitions, taking cliche pictures of sunsets and kids and ranting far too much on Twitter. Without further ado, please enjoy this phenomenal conversation with DHH. David Heinemeyer Hansen, my friend, how are you? Good, good. How are you? I'm awesome, man. Thank you so much for being on Elevate. I'm excited about our discussion today. If any of the listeners are watching on YouTube, they can see I have uh, one of your amazing books uh, on my bookshelf displayed there. And and obviously being a user of Basecamp, as you and I were discussing before starting the podcast, I appreciate your work. I'm excited about our discussion today. I know many of the listeners are going to get a ton of value from this discussion. Before we dive in, I would love to hear your thoughts on if others who know you best, the people that know you best in your life were to describe you in the most, you know, deep way they could, what would they say about DHH, the, you know, the, 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 the man that we know as DHH, what would they say about you? Oh
1: man, that's a good question. It's always hard to be uh, objective about that. Describing yourself through others. Um, I think persistent is probably a good word. Um, I've stuck to a lot of things, beliefs, tactics, Uh, ventures for a long time. Um, So maybe that's that's a good word to uh, to stick it at.
0: I like that. So when you say stuck to ventures and beliefs for a very long time, what has that looked like?
1: Yeah. So mentioned Basecamp. I've been working on Basecamp now for, what is that going to be? 18 years? Um, basically the bulk of my career has been spent on things that I started in my early twenties and now I'm in my early forties. So it's been a while, but there's been just such a satisfaction of sticking with it. Um, there's a sense of the entrepreneurial community often that what you're supposed to do is to be a serial entrepreneur. You do one thing for a little while and then you jump to the next thing. In fact, it's one of the most common questions I get is what's next. And my answer is usually is sticking to it. That Mm. won't mean that I'll do this forever until I'm dead. But um, I think so much of what I've gotten out of working on Basecamp has only revealed itself in year five, in year 10, in year 15, in year 20. And the same is true for beliefs. Uh, The books we've written, Jason and I, we've written four books together. The first one, Getting Real, all the way back in I think, what was that, 2006 maybe that was released? Um, and then reworked 2010, remote in 2012 or 13. Um, so much of that material is still things I just still believe. Not everything, you change your mind sometimes as you experience new things, then this reality shows you a new way. But um, I think just this uh, idea of, of adding to a base, It's kind of the same thing as I look at in investing. I'm the most boring investor ever because I have a very large, fairly risky investment in my own company. That's the largest investment I have. So everything outside of that just needs to be the most boring thing possible. And then the magic of compound interest just kicks in and does its thing. And if you have money in the market for 10, 20 years, hey, that's good enough. And I think of that with both the products we have and the beliefs we put out there that the compound interest on those over 20 years, plenty. I don't need more than that.
0: That's beautiful. And I just think about the people that I admire most in this world are those that can be resolute in their decisions and they can stick with something for a long period of time. And it's almost perhaps a sign of, you know, of of obviously of commitment, but also of, you know emotional intelligence, because I think as an entrepreneur, there is this tendency to say, all right, well, let's move on to the next thing because, you know, maybe we're running into some challenge or maybe things aren't going the way we thought they would. Or maybe we feel like, you know, if we exited at this point, we can just pound our chest and say, hey, we're this massive success. And I think that long-term commitment is is not easy, man. It's And, and so there's a lot of admiration that I have for that thought process in the same with beliefs. And I think that, you know, I think it's important to really highlight that the compound interest of continuing to not only stick to beliefs, but also of course, evolve those over time and refine those and study those and Evolve those beliefs based on new information, but I, 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 just, I really align with that in in many ways, and so I appreciate that. But could you tell us a little bit about you know your upbringing, your backstory? Because from what I understand, you kind of grew up lower middle class in Denmark, and give us a sense of how that background sort of shaped your view of the world and how what you just described to be so relevant.
1: Yes, yeah, so I grew up in Copenhagen, Denmark, and I was here for. I say here because I'm actually right now back in Copenhagen, Denmark, after 15 years living in the U.S. But I lived in Copenhagen from I was born until I was 25 and grew up when when we say lower middle class, um, basically working class. It's just that Denmark is um, a quite... Um, Compressed class hierarchy, if you will, it's not very divided. It's it's one of the most equal countries in the world when you look at Gini coefficients and and all these other metrics, and that really played out well in my favor. That even though um, I grew up uh, working class to, to working class parents, I didn't feel like any of the opportunities that I wanted to pursue were kept from me. Um, I had some health issues when I was a kid uh, that. I needed ear surgery to overcome and I'm just having lived in the U S for 15 years. I I try to imagine what that would have been like if I had not lived in Denmark with a universal healthcare system. And I I, I don't really like to think about that. It doesn't sound particularly uh, nice. The same thing as it comes to education that I had a path to, um, go to great public schools in Denmark and transition straight that into a, um, bachelor's degree from the Copenhagen Business School and never having to think of, oh, can I afford it? Can we afford it? Is this a path I can take? Uh, Which just allowed me to have a level of, I think, ambition that was just uninhibited by, oh, what is going to constrain me? What's going to hold me back? But also at the same time, not having this exaggerated sense of self that I had to overcome this immense hardship to get where I am. There's so many entrepreneurial stories that focus on that mythology of like, I had nothing. I lived out of two garbage bags and whatever. Okay, great. That's, I mean, <laughs> admirable. I, I, really kudos to you. My story was far more mundane. I didn't have that level of challenges in it. So I never felt either a later desire that I had to go up against that. I had to replicate that. I had to luxuriate in that level of adversity. Um, And I think, I mean, in some circles, you'd say like, well, that is just the ultimate example of privilege. And yes, a privilege shared with every other inhabitant, more or less plus minus in the great state of Denmark. Like it's not exactly a unique or blessed setup, but I think it really did shape my approach to things. Because what I also found out of that was that upbringing was relatively balanced. Like I didn't have this okay, I'm just going to focus on this one thing for 80 hours or 100 hours a week and it's going to be nothing but that because this is one my one shot and if I blow it, then what? Mom's spaghetti on the shirt or something. Mm-hmm. That was just not the reality, right? So when I entered the the workforce and I started working with Jason, this idea of like work is 40 hours a week was solidly ingrained, partly because that is simply the, the Danish norm, partly because... I had arrived to where I was doing that, not with this singular obsession with one thing above everything else. No, hey, a full life is a mix of many things. Um, I wouldn't have given up some of the years I spent playing video games. I wouldn't have given up um, the, the time that I spent in school focusing on other things than... Computers. Um, I wouldn't have given up any of these other things that created all this tapestry of experience that ultimately led me to where I am today. And that was a really important bulwark to have against the pressures of American entrepreneurship, because the American entrepreneurship and its ideals is usually the exact opposite of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all in on one thing to the max all the time for as long as you can. Um, the best one up you can do is I work harder than anyone else. I always thought that's such a weird aspiration to have. Why would you want to work harder than everything, everyone else? I want to work smarter than everyone else and like kick back and take some time to relax and do vacations and have hobbies and all these things. Isn't that the supposed outcome we're, 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 due to get if we do well, right? This linkage between doing well and being obsessed or or shackled to work. I always found very curious as in where's the reward? Isn't the reward of doing well and having success a time and a place to enjoy some of those splendors. That's at least how I viewed it. And I think it really colored how Jason and I approached, um, the business. And then we didn't have these aspirations from the get-go of like, let's see how big we can get how f- as fast as possible if we pour in everything. Um, and instead we thought like, you know what, if we just stick with this, it'll be fine. And that's where the notion of compound interest comes in. There are plenty of companies who've grown much, much faster than Basecamp has over the years. But if you look in the retrospect of 20 years of profitability software levels of profitability do you know what it turns out all right or it ter- turned out all right in our case right like we've made more money than what we know what to to do with and so we could have what made even more money that we, knew even less what to do with. If we had traded everything else in those two decades, if I have invested my entire set of twenties, my entire set of thirties into just a single notion of growing base camp to be the biggest thing it possibly could get, I'd be like, okay, so now there are more zeros or digits or whatever in the bank account. Like, but now I'm 42 and like, I gotta tell you, things already hurt. And and (laughs) I mean that in a very physical sense, right? Like um, I, I did things. I was able to to spend a lot of my time racing race cars for much of my 30s, and some of that is a young person's game. Um, in fact, I've reached the point where I'm like, I'm 42 now. Like, I just know I'm I'm not gonna get better, right? Like, it only goes downhill from here. But I have an entire decade's worth of fun that was invested into that because there was room for other things next to Basecamp. And that to me is a trophy that, uh, I wouldn't want to trade in for any amount of extra digits.
0: No, yeah, that's, that's amazing. And, and one of the biggest highlights of what you just shared from your backstory that I think any of the listeners can gain is that we've got to question conventional wisdom. You just talked about sort of the, the, the culture behind American entrepreneurialism or even investing and in maybe just the culture of American life in, in many ways in the business world is, Hey, you know, balls to the wall, you know, full throttle, completely all in on something burn out until you succeed. And, you know, Wait a minute. Well, is that success, quote unquote, really what we want? Is that really what you want on the back end? What do you actually get from that? And I think it's like, wait a minute. If we actually take a step back and slow down for a second and look around, it's like, well, of course we don't want that. Of course we don't want, you know, poor health in the future. Of course we don't want, you know, failing relationships in the future. Of course we don't want, you know, zero time to spend with our children and all these different things. And we get that if we don't ask these questions. So I just appreciate you sharing that sort of perspective because I think we can all kind of take inventory and say, well, wait a minute, what have I not been questioning? Right. And so I, d- I just appreciate that. But tell me a little bit about when you and Jason met um, and, and actually how you guys became partners and, and what that looked like. You know, what was it that, that you saw in each other that made you want to explore partnership?
1: Yeah, so... It's funny, just, I think it was last year, we tried to find out the exact origins of this collaboration because it's 20 years ago now. And um, I think we pretty much narrowed it down that somewhere between September and November of 2001, I sent Jason an email when he had posted a question on the company blog about a programming issue. We thought it was pagination. It probably still was, but maybe it was some other issue. Either way, here I was sitting in Copenhagen, Denmark, 20 years ago, I didn't know Jason. I was just a fan of the company at the time, which (laughs) back then was called 37signals, and it wasn't even a software company. It was a web design company doing client work. And I was simply a fan of the aesthetic. One of the things I remember when I first discovered 37signals was, here's a design shop where when you went to the website, there was no design. In the sense that there were no pictures is was 37 declarations a manifesto of what the company stood for and why it stood for those things oh we don't participate in award shows for example because we think there was a bullshit and lead us astray and this that and the other thing i just thought like this is really fascinating <laughs> um i had this notion at the time this is uh early 2000s late 90s that um design is like is graphics design is something you make in photoshop and this company 37 Sickles really previewed that later notion I would pick up from Steve Jobs is that design is not how it looks, design is how it works. Mm. So I just thought like, this is really interesting. Um, So I started following the company blog and when there was an opportunity for me to give something back after having been a reader for a year, year and a half, I thought, hey, let me jump to that. I've learned a lot. I've been influenced a lot by this company. Here's an opportunity where I can share something I know with one of the people behind that. So I sent Jason an email out of the blue, just saying like, hey, here's how to do it. I spent some time putting into it, not expecting anything in in return, just repaying the favor that I had gotten from him and the rest of the company at the time, and that quickly developed into a um, understanding that it was easier for Jason to hire me than it was how to, to learn how to program. And we started working together first for clients. And then in 2003, we started working on what is today Basecamp, um, this project management and collaboration platform that we first were building just for ourselves. we were realizing as we were doing these client projects, Do you know what? Trying to organize things over email seems great for the first two, three, five emails until you have two, three, four people involved. And then invariably something is dropped on the floor and someone goes, shit, we can't have this happen again. We need a system. We need a system where things don't fall through the cracks. And that system we just wanted to build for ourselves turned into Basecamp. We realized halfway through, do you know what? Maybe we're not the only ones who have this problem. Maybe Mm -hmm. we're not the only ones trying Mm -hmm. to organize projects over email and failing. Could this be a product? We turned it into a product. In the first three weeks after launch, it blew through our very modest um, one-year projections for how well we would have loved this thing to do, and we thought, hey, there might be something here. So we had this great launch, um, and yet still, we were patient. If you think about it, in today's term, it was a really odd thing. We launched this thing. There's interest. We blow our projections out of the water. But our projections were that the thing was going to make $4,000 a month. <laughs> like that's pretty modest in terms of level of ambition, right? So we blow through that quickly. And yet we don't quit our day job. We continue on to with our day job for another year simply slowly growing this thing as a side project such that by the time we make the decision to go quote unquote all in, there's no risk. There's nothing to go all in with. This thing is a profitable business that can easily pay our salaries. And I think that really cemented our approach to business. The business does not have to be about this uh, gunslinger risk. It doesn't have to be about the wild west where we're risking everything, uh, chasing down a pot of gold. In fact, the best business ventures, in my opinions, are the ones that are complete no-brainers. By the mm. time we had run this side project for a year, it was a no-brainer to switch over. We weren't risking anything. We weren't maxing out credit cards. We weren't taking out third mortgages. We were just like, hey, there's business we built up on the side, which essentially also had no risk. Like We built it up on the side. We had a profitable business um, making web designs for For clients. So, if Basecamp hadn't worked out, we'd also been like, well, that was fun. Now we just have an internal tool that we like to use, and we learned something along the way. Um, What a terrible outcome! But (laughs) the outcome turned to be turned out to be better than that, and we really kept it in that vein. Then for the next 20 years. How can we grow within our means, never overextend or stretch ourselves? And perhaps some of that came from the fact that when we started working together, 2001, fall of 2001, what had just popped? The dot-com bubble, literally. Jason and I had gone through working in the industry for the couple of years before that. We'd seen the exuberance run up and everyone like, oh, you can't lose money on internet stock. And everyone starts day trading Mm -hmm. and you just go like, wow, maybe, maybe this time is different. And then mm. of course it wasn't different because no time is ever different. And it just popped and it exploded and it spilled all over everything. And that's one of those experiences where I think like that was our like great depression in, in a much milder way. Like we didn't have to stand in any food lines, but I think of that when you, you see someone of an elder generation go like, don't, don't waste the butter, even though like they have Right. a million dollars in the bank or something, right? Like it's just been ingrained in them to live within the means and they're marked by those challenges that they have. And Jason and I and Basecamp was absolutely founded in that sense that, do you know what, this time is not different and you have to live by the eternal rules of of business and commerce and like you can't suspend those regardless of how much disbelief you inject into it, which is one of the things that have been I think given us a basis of staying calm when other things just explode, like uh, cryptocurrencies or uh, housing, two thousand and eight, or, or many of these other things. where every single time they go like this time it's different. It's never different.
0: David, people Um, are saying that right now. I mean, you know, this time is different. There's no such thing as a correction.
1: This is now to be concerned, right? Is when everyone starts day trading or as in with our current atmosphere, when everyone starts crypto investing, like, oh, you can't lose money on this new coin.
0: I know. You can yeah, yeah. And if you, if you hear the phrase, Hey, stocks only go up, then, you know, it's probably time to, uh, to be concerned, right? Yes. So talk, yes. what are the, um, man, I, I just, first of all, Basecamp, you know, the, the culture of Basecamp comes through. If you're, if you're a customer of Basecamp, you can feel it because the people actually care, right? And, and if you have a challenge or you have an issue, people will help you solve it very, very quickly. And so that, I think that comes through sort of that long-term commitment that you and Jason have, you know, have given to the organization, to the company, to its structure. And so I think that there's so much that we can learn from that. Before we get to that, I want to do, I do want to talk about like remote work and, and how you guys were ahead of the game in so many ways. And I'm sure you were vindicated 18 months ago, as we were talking before the, uh, before we started recording, but before we get there real quickly, you mentioned the eternal rules of business and commerce. Um, do, do you have those? I mean, what, what are those specifically?
1: For me, the simplest is that you have to make more money than you spend. Okay, there you go. Yeah, and and that it sounds so plain. And I understand that there are situations where where you can take on more money or you make investments and they won't pay off until a certain time and so forth, so on and so forth. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, eventually, it comes down to that. Yeah, you can suspend disbelief for only so long. And you know what? You're not Amazon. You're not going to get twenty years. Those are, are outliers for a reason. And everyone in the tech community right now seems to think that like they're all Amazon. They're all going to become the largest company in the world and they can just turn on a money faucet when they do. And in the meantime, they can waste billions of dollars trying to get there. Odds uh, are that like that's not going to happen to you. So the way to control your own destiny and be in charge of whether your business is around the following years is simply to make more money than you spend. And if you do, you gain the greatest uh, thing you can have in business, in my opinion, independence. And it's that independence that has enabled us at Basecamp to do these weird things, many weird things, like spending so much time writing books and talking about things or advocating for stuff like remote when you think like, hey, do you know what? This is actually a wonderful secret. We should have Mm -hmm. kept that to ourselves. We shouldn't have tried to promote this. We should just have thought like, you know what, we have access to what 700 million people when we try to hire uh, new employees because we hire from around the world. Like, shh, don't tell them (laughs) that. Um, But it isn't isn't all about that. We have this independence to outshare the competition. We have this independence to try uh, these things that we do. And we have this independence to say no to growth in many cases, or or to simply double down and stick with things that we want to want to do. And I think that that's the other part of why we've been around for 20 years doing much the same thing, because we had the independence to design our work lives the way we wanted them to be. Like if I had a better idea right now for how I wanted my day to be structured, I just put that in place. And that would be reality tomorrow. I mean, give and take, but that is often one of those factors that lead people to like, you know what? I got to move on. I got myself into a situation I don't actually like because of all these other things that are impeding on my independence. And therefore now it's time to go. If you set yourself in a position where that's not true. So, in technology, for example, uh, the most common path that co- uh, companies take when they want to grow is they take venture capital, and then they get set on a certain trajectory where they have to meet certain milestones by this amount of time, otherwise it's game over. We didn't have that. That's not because we're against growth in, in sort of a fundamental way. We've uh, had t- many tens of thousands of customers, uh, over 100,000 customers uh, in, in total. I'd be happy if we had 200,000 customers or 300,000 or 400,000. It's not a, against that. It is, what are you willing to trade to get there? Get, which gets gets to the point we were talking about earlier about, do you know what? I could have worked much harder in my 20s. I could have worked much harder in my 30s as well. And I, then I would have traded my 20s and my 30s and all the hobbies and experiences and wonderful vacations and everything else that I experienced, then I, I maybe I would have had a few more digits on the bank account. Is that a good trade? I'd look back upon that and say like, no, I I wouldn't wanna do that, right? And the Mm -hmm. same thing with growth for a business is that there are ways you can extend yourself and risks, take risks, for example, right? maybe we would have grown faster if we had run deficits for longer and then we wouldn't have been charging our destiny. And then maybe 2008 would have come a- around and we would have been caught with our pants down when suddenly we didn't have the buffer and the margin to absorb things, right? Uh, right. A lot of people look at those things like buffer and margin uh, as, as things that should be boiled away. Like this is inefficient, you're capital is inefficient because what, you're taking profits? Um,
0: no. Hey guys, just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital and you know how much I love real estate and how it can be a vehicle towards creating any outcome that you want in your life, which is really why we created CF Capital. It's a real estate investment firm that focuses on acquiring and operating multifamily assets that provide stable cash flow, capital appreciation, and a margin of safety for our investors, for our partners, and for the people that we serve. Our team leverages its expertise in acquisitions and management to provide investors like you with superior risk adjusted returns while placing a premium on preserving capital. Our mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors maximize their returns by investing in high value multifamily communities. Our philosophy is that we can elevate communities together through this process. And I want to invite you to go check out cfcapllc.com because we have a free ebook. That's called The Bottom Line, The 10 Ways to Increase cash flow in an Apartment Complex. And I wanna tell you that this is a value-packed ebook. So I wanna invite you to go check that out right now at cfcapllc.com. I think you're gonna get a ton of value just from reading this, whether you apply it to your own business or whether you educate yourself further on what it would look like if you invested with CF Capital. So go check that out at cfcapllc.com. Again, that's cfcapllc.com and enjoy the rest of the show. Man, I just think that I just love your philosophies. And, and I think about buffer and margin as being critical in any business, whether you're a real estate investor, whether you're a tech entrepreneur, whether you're you know, any type of entrepreneur, you have to have that buffer. And I think it's important to also think about the trade-offs that we're making. I mean, I think we, that's how we started our conversation. I do want to come back to more of your philosophies later, part of this conversation, because I think that they're super valuable in the way that you look at sort of those trade-offs. But before we get there, I mean, you were, you guys were ahead of the game. I mean, 2013, the book, you know, remote comes out and obviously you guys have been talking about this for years before that you guys have been living this life for years before that you mentioned the access to talent all over the world that you have enjoyed, you know, before this has become mainstream. And of course, early 2020 COVID hits, everybody's like, we cannot go to the office. We've got to figure out this remote thing. You guys, I'm sure we're feeling a bit vindicated. You're probably like, Hey, you know, you guys need any tips, uh, go get the book or, you know, or, or we can help you out here. But, you know, I think over that period of time, many companies have, have done well, they've, they've, they've settled into it. Many have said, you know, I don't know how, how we can make this work. You know, what have you seen have been some of the best case scenarios or some of the best examples since COVID of companies adapting in this way and and really embracing remote work? Is there any that come to mind?
1: Yes, there's one that stands above all else. And that is the idea that if you approached remote as a virtual version of the office and you kept all the same ways of collaborating, you weren't doing well. Because you were just trying to translate an in-person approach to work to to virtual, and it doesn't work very well. And people found that out when they were sitting in their sixth Zoom meeting of the day and they were completely dead. Because you know what, Um, I'm not a a big fan of meetings in general, but I'm an even smaller fan of meetings uh, virtually. It's a wonder that we can do these things. It's a wonder that we have uh, video conferencing and that it's a reasonable substitute some of the time. But to really make the leap from being an in-person company to being a distributed company, you also have to make the leap from synchronous collaboration to asynchronous collaboration. From a meetings culture to a writing culture. Instead of reading for, reaching for the meeting as the first tool when you want to distribute information, pitch an idea, reach for writing first. And that is really what enables you to not just go remote within, say, the same city, but go remote across time zones, go remote across continents, and allow the people who are living that remote lifestyle to live the best version of it. And the best version of that is where there are very few demands on you to be in a certain place at a certain time. The flexibility that people love with remote work is that, you know what, sometimes I can take two hours in the middle of the day and I will deal with an issue that's popping up or run an errand and I'll pat that two hours back either in the morning or, or later in the evening. The flexibility it gives for someone to live their life is, is so great. And we knew this because we were getting the information from everyone who joined the company who had been working at an in office company and they went like, I'm not going back. Right. Like we're seeing a lot of that now. It's coming out in all these surveys from employees saying like, there is no way I would take another in-office job again. I'm just, I'm out of that labor force yeah. literally. <laughs> that I am not available for, for the kind of companies who insist on me coming to the office. And we've been seeing that for 20 years. As I said, this is how we kicked things off between Jason and I. I was sitting in Copenhagen, Denmark. Jason was sitting in Chicago, Illinois. We had seven time zones between us. So we were sort of bred on this. Um, I had spent years before that doing collaboration over the internet with others. So for me, this was sort of like the, the, the natural angle. I had also worked in offices and had found out quite early in my career that I was totally not cut out for that. Um, in fact, I wasted several years, I think, of my career languishing in an office because I could not find the space, the head space, both the space, the physical space and the head space to advance on the fundamentals that I really want to advance on. So I really took to remote work. Jason took to remote work. Our whole company was founded in that. Basecamp in large extent was a tool already in 2003 made for remote work. So by the time 2020 rolls around, and all of a sudden everyone has to do it. um, It was interesting to see like, all right, well, welcome to the party. I'm (laughs) sad that you have to join the party under these circumstances. And that is quite difficult. And some people took it to be like working remotely during a pandemic is the same thing as working remotely. And it was like, absolutely Mm. not. Working remotely during a pandemic is at least 10 times as hard as working remotely normally. Um, And you need to be able to separate those two things, because I can totally imagine a lot of people who've only had the remote work experience during a pandemic going, "Uh uh-uh, as soon as those offices open again, I am out of this shared bedroom where the kids (laughs) are screaming because they're being homeschooled at the same time and all this other stuff, right? And I'd just be like, hey, do you know what? That's not the full experience. And there is a better version of remote work. And that's the one I've been living for 20 years and we've been advocating for just as long. As you said, we wrote that book in 2013. And the funny thing was in 2013, I thought like, we're late. We're (laughs) late to this because we've been working like this already for over a decade. Um, Aren't we just stating the obvious? And that is some (laughs) of the myopia you can sometimes get yourself into when you've been living in a certain environment that just takes things for granted that are just totally not distributed, which gets back to the, um, Uh, William Gibson quote that the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. We were living the future in 2004. We were working remotely all the way back then. And then the rest of the world caught up in 2020.
0: Yeah, man, that is really good. It actually makes me think a lot of you know some of the stuff that I know myself and many of the listeners are are you know knowledgeable on their real estate business or the way that they execute their strategy. And to to many of us, it's second nature. And sometimes we feel like it's not important to share because you know what, everybody knows this. But you know, it's just so interesting because I think that that's a reminder that hey, you know what, we live in these bubbles, and and how much more abundance can we invite more people into if we share our expertise? If we share our experiences, whether it's remote work or otherwise, but man, there's so many different things that I think that people have realized through this time of, of being almost forced in some ways to work remotely. It's like productivity, you know, has skyrocketed in many capacities, efficiency, effectiveness, Um, You just talked about the access to talent and hiring and keeping the best. Obviously, it's important to note that if you're going to do this effectively, you've got to hire the right people, because if it's people that you're going to need to babysit, they're definitely not the right people for remote work. And I'm sure many of the listeners can resonate with that in a big, big way. Um, Also thinking about the, you know, as you mentioned, the culture of writing versus meetings. I think that's critical. And it's important to note that, you know, one of the things that you guys have shared is that. That's an important skill for any talent for a remote work type of organization. If you're going to communicate effectively, it has to be through effective writing. And so there's obviously ways to enhance the way that you write culture, uh, work-life balance. I mean, ultimately, man, it's 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 almost goes back to these philosophies of like, what's the trade, right? What's the trade? Many people have given this trade of 60, 70, 80 hours in an office, you know, for 30, 40 years and look back and say, man, was the trade worth it? And, you know, thinking about some of these other things, obviously, there's pros and cons, right? There can be pros and cons in terms of, hey, you know what, cabin fever, maybe I'm not getting enough uh, in-person interaction with other people. Could you talk about maybe some tips or maybe some policies or structures that you might suggest for folks? Obviously, highly recommend go read the book remote um but but any other tips that you might share for folks to kind of build in the structure of hey let's get out of this cabin fever and then also in terms of effectiveness of collaboration
1: yeah I'll, I'll give a couple so the first i'll say is that just because you go remote and build a remote organization does not mean you never meet in person i'd say that's probably one of the biggest losses we've had at base camp we used to meet the entire company twice a year we'd fly everyone into chicago and we'd spend a week together mainly just to regenerate those human bonds, that there is something that happens when you are in person. In, in some ways, the skeptics of remote work were right, that like there is a magic to be in person. They were just wrong about the quantity, that it doesn't have to be every day all week. It doesn't even have to be every month. What we found at Basecamp was doing it twice a year, very intensely for about a week at a time, that delivered um a great sort of burst so that we got the maximum out of it since so that when people saw those names on a piece of writing that they were reading asynchronously they knew another human right like it was not just an avatar it was an actual person that they had some sort of relationship with so i'd say that's still important and i hope that people when they can can go back to doing some of that not just going oh remote is great we never need to see each other um i don't think that's um That's true. The other thing is that there are a lot of things you can do while you're remote to simulate some of those things. At Basecamp, we use the Basecamp feature called automatic check-ins to ask a range of social questions um we used to talk about um what books you've been reading um one of the most popular ones is what did you do last weekend people Mm. share like oh i went out with my kids we i just posted about this yesterday we went out ice skating because it's cold enough now in copenhagen that they have these outdoor uh skate rings and you just you share something that you generate these feel like again We're humans. They're humans on the other side of this. It's not just about the increased productivity and efficiency and all these other things. Those are wonderful benefits to remote work. And they often come as a consequence of letting people work efficiently for long periods of time uninterrupted. That when you are in the office, it's often difficult to find one, two, three, or even four hours in a row, like that basically never happens. When you work remotely, it is far easier to get into that flow. And if you're working with people who need long stretches of uninterrupted time to get to the bottom of things, um, you'll see a huge spike in productivity when you give them that. It's not really rocket science, but it does seem like a revelation when you see it from the first time. I say the other thing is that it has shown us this disconnect between someone who spends 80 hours in an office um, and that that means that they're good at their job? Absolutely not. There's total huge number of people who can waste 80 hours a week and, and maybe even on top of wasting their own time, they're also wasting everyone else's time. There are plenty of people who can manage to be net negative for an organization. And I think when you go remote, the quality of the work product just stands out more. You're not as sort of lulled into like, oh, uh, Jack always comes into the office early and he always leaves late. That means he must be the best worker. Yes. Right? No. look at what is Jack actually producing? Maybe it is Jill that's the best worker, even if so, she comes in at 10 and, and, and leaves at four because she's far more efficient and she's producing far more value. And what are we paying people for? Are we paying it to occupy hours of their life or are we paying them because they're creating value? Hopefully the latter. And I think remote work just makes it clear to see that. And I think perhaps also that's why it is a bit of a threatening or disconcerting shift for some people, particularly people who are in a, bit of an insecure position. Like what is the value they actually bring? And sometimes it's easier in certain roles to kind of pretend uh, or show up for those things in the office. Um, A a great essay written by um, the late David Graeber called Bullshit Jobs included a, a survey that said that about a third of everyone working today, um, think that their job has no purpose, that they're not doing anything of meaning, they're not contributing anything. And you know what, if, if they weren't doing that job, it wouldn't matter. That's a tragedy, right? And I think that those tragedies are more easily exposed in a remote work world where hopefully you can then transform. There's like, you know what, this is a bullshit job. Let's turn it into something else. There's always more you can do inside an organization that actually is valuable but you have to spot the parts where you're wasting your efforts first so that you create that space to to spend the time and energy better
0: Yeah, it is really interesting. When we originally went remote ourselves, we identified, I remember one particular, you know, individual on our team that was just really not adding value. But when we were in office, you know, this individual was always showing up early, staying late. And so we we always appreciated that. We thought that that was, you know, extra effort and all these things. But when you took away that dynamic, it was clear that it just wasn't the right fit. And so I think that there's value in obviously identifying that, and then obviously giving people the the opportunity to add more value rather than just being a placeholder. And the other thing that I'll say is, I remember when I got started in my professional career, it was more so about, hey, what time did you get here? What time are you leaving? How long have you been in that seat if you wanna to get to the next level? And that is totally broken. I think most listeners recognize that that is broken. So I just appreciate how this can shed additional light on that. But but David I want to switch gears just a bit. I want to talk more about philosophy because man I read uh, one of your articles you you wrote in in Business Insider in 2015 which I loved. And the you know it was titled Becoming a Millionaire Was Nothing Like I Expected. And I know that this this really resonates with me. You talk about when Jeff Bezos invested in Basecamp alongside your team and and obviously things changed for you financially significantly. Talk to me about that. And, and and obviously the listeners should definitely go check out this article, we'll put a link in the show notes, but you talked about, you know, you had always expected, Hey, when I, when I become a millionaire, you know, all these things are going to happen. And you know, this true source of happiness is going to be here. Talk to me about that experience.
1: Yeah, it was one of those great uh, things where you look behind a curtain and you're like, Oh wait, what? This is what's back here. I thought it was something else entirely. And this notion of, of getting to, our capitalist dream, right? That you become independently wealthy to the point where you can do most of the things that you want to do. And I mean, the independently wealthy we became at that point was was modest in the large scale of tech successes and so on. It was just like, hey, do you know what? I don't have to look at the prices at grocery stores anymore. I can buy most normal things that I want to um, that I want to do. Um, but then I found out, like, it just didn't last very long. That we got very quickly to. The point where you're like, okay, it's been a week. The money's in my bank account. And now it's Monday again. And I'm back to like, do you know what? How, how do I spend eight hours a day? What do I get my deep satisfaction from? And it was one of those things where you're like, well, I thought it was this, but it was actually that, that the deep source of satisfaction was not chasing some financial payday. It was the journey. It was doing the work. For me, it was programming, it was writing, it was building the company, it was doing the mechanics of it. It was like, actually, this is what I really enjoy. And the money didn't really change that. It made certain aspects easier and I would never sort of recommend anyone to turn it down. It's wonderful to have the surety of that uh, in your back, although it comes with some other issues. Um, But it wasn't that this deep, enduring source of satisfaction. It is just like, this is not what life is about. This is not a source of deep meaning. Um, And you, in some ways, it's disappointing. It's disappointing to get to the end of the rainbow, find your pot of gold, and then go, ta-da, all my problems are now solved and all my worries are... Evaporating and you're like, actually, no, they're not. They're still there. um, And I still have to solve the problem of life the solve the problem of existence, of figure out what the meaning is for me to still be here and get up in the morning and do all these other things. Because uh, I had written another article where we coined it. This was maybe even in rework called Mojito Island which was this pattern I kept seeing repeated by tech entrepreneurs who would sell the company. They'd be like, wow, I built this wonderful big thing. Now I'm going to sell it for a lot of money. And then I'm going to retire and I'm going to sit on Mojito Island and watch the sunset with my uh, feet in the sand and just enjoy that Mojito, right? And the time frame on that is about three weeks. That's how long it takes for someone who has to drive to build companies, to realize, Do you know what? Living a life of eternal leisure was not the point. I thought that was the point. I thought that was the payoff. I thought this was the meaning, but it isn't. And I'm bored out of my mind. I can't watch another sunset. I can't drink another mojito. And I'm tired of the beach. So let me get back to work. And that's what I just said, Saw repeated over and over again. And in fact, I I should have known, right? Coming up to my own experience, that this was what was going to happen to me and us as well. But at least we got to learn that lesson or we got to shatter that illusion in a cheap way because we hadn't sold our independence. We hadn't sold the company. There's a great other book called uh, Small Giants that look at um, small, medium-sized businesses and entrepreneurs who own them, who sell those companies. And about half of them end up regretting it. They're like, ah, geez, I shouldn't have done that. Because it's actually not that easy to find the circumstances where you can enjoy that purpose of being where like I found a space where I'm doing something that's meaningful and valuable. I'm creating value. That's great. Other people see that that's valuable. Maybe they want to buy it. Okay. I sell it. Now what? I'm 42. There's about what uh, 40 or 50 years left on the clock. I got to figure out something else to do. And sometimes the second idea is not as good as the first. I, ha- I had such a humility with that. That base camp was a great idea. And you know what? It may very well be the greatest idea I've ever have when it comes to business, that it is not something that we can top. And I'm okay with that, right? You look at the great people of history, oftentimes they're known for one thing or two things, and like it happened at some point in their career. And then after that, they weren't able to top that. And that is difficult, I think, for someone to deal with when they have this internal drive to think like, of course I'm gonna outdo the last thing I did because it's only an upward trajectory, right? Like we're only going up and to the right. And then they realize that, well, actually it's not that easy to replicate. And perhaps part of the reason this first thing succeeded was timing, was luck, was the right place at the right time. And maybe I'm just not that good. <laughs> and that's just a difficult thing to face yeah. on an ego level. And I'm like, Do you know what? I'm not even sure I wanna ask the question Right? Maybe let's just leave it be. Maybe it was luck. Maybe it was timing. Maybe it was all these other things. I don't think it's all that there is to it, but it's certainly a multiplier. You can be very good, and it won't matter if you're at the wrong place at the wrong time. It, your skill will simply not be relevant. And you can be mediocre while at the right time at the right place, and you'll look like a genius. Um, it's very hard to tease out after the fact. So getting to that point was just one of those things where. It's it's funny too It's one of the things you can't tell other people around But I wrote the article mostly for myself As a moment of time I want to remember this Not because I actually thought I could convince anyone else Because this is the thing I, I remember And I write about this in the piece too Of reading others coming to the same conclusions And, trying yes. to share it, and I'd be like Yeah, easy for you to say, asshole You're the <laughs> one with millions of dollars in your bank account, right? Right um, So it, it's one of those f- fundamental I think, truths that you just can't convey, actually, very efficiently to other people because they won't believe you. And to some extent, I think there is actually some or some bliss in that level of ignorance when you think like, hey, if I reach to this point, which most people won't, right, let's just be honest, most people who start businesses, they don't succeed to the tune of millions of dollars and, and personal independence. Most people fail, right? Um, that at least they get to live with the idea that as long as they're striving, like there is a point at the end of the rainbow, that's going to make them all happy. And that has a tendency to perhaps evaporate some of these other concerns and these bigger problems that come up when you do reach the other side and like, okay, now I could do whatever I want. Oh shit. Now I have to figure out what I want. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. That's a really difficult question. Perhaps it was easier to just, take a number in the traditional line. I think what I want is I want to become rich. Mm -hmm. Like That's just a, you can just take it off the shelf. And there's endless amounts of articles and influencers and Instagram pictures and whatever to keep you on that threat treadmill, right? Like you don't have to think too hard about it. If you actually get there, shit, now you're in trouble. Like Mm -hmm. now the blueprint is not at all ready. And you try to follow it for a couple of weeks and you realize, ah, damn it. This was this was not it. Um, And that actually is, again, no one's going to cry any tears about uh, dissolution millionaires on the other side. Doesn't mean the problem isn't real. And there are not plenty of entrepreneurs who have arrived there and thought like I was almost happy on the other side, which is one of the funny things. And one of the reasons we kept Basecamp so small for so long was I kept having these discussions with other entrepreneurs who would say like, remember in the early days, oh, we had so much fun when it was just us uh, sitting around a large pizza on a, on a fold over table. They would always talk about it like in the all the opposite terms of the success, right? That this was where the foundational experiences were had. And these really good, challenging times were, even though now they were sitting on this huge organization, they could do whatever they want, right? They were reminiscing about the early days, that this was the fun time. And I think there's some really important truths in that where, do you know what, if you're just starting a company right now and you're two people, you're three people, you're four people, you're five people, this might be the best it ever gets. This might be the peak of your satisfaction in working life. And that when you get to fulfill your financial dreams, you'll look back upon those early days and think like, damn, we really had it good and we didn't know it.
0: Hmm, man, that's that's really, really interesting and really insightful. And there's just so much deep truth in, in everything that you shared and 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 especially in the article. I mean, you talked about the true sources of happiness that you had all along, which was flow and tranquility. And you had most of the things that really caused you know, the life of fulfillment already on the other side, you know, before you reach the financial success that you're describing. Also just a couple other quotes that I thought were gold was money will not complete me. Material things will not complete me. And here's the biggest one. And I think it's, it's, it's almost, it kind of wraps up our conversation in such a great way. You said very little in this world is worth deferring. And when we think about remote work, we think about designing a life. It's not about saying, hey, one day I'm going to live this lifestyle. One day I'm going to do this thing. And hey, you know what? Maybe we'll go there in 10 years or 15 years or whatever. I just think that's the biggest calling card from the example that you've set in so many ways. And David, I just appreciate you so much, man. I'm so excited about this conversation. I'm so excited about sharing this with so many others. Before we wrap today, I want to transition into the rapid fire section of the podcast. We call it the rare air questionnaire. I think these philosophies are rare, right? You know, having this understanding and this deep truth is rare, but also having the understanding of, well, wait a minute, I can integrate that into my own belief system is also rare, but you know what? Rare can be good, right? So I'd like to ask you a few questions, obviously being a prolific author yourself. um, If you had to point to two or three of the most impactful books that you've read over the past few years, what would those be and why? A guide to the
1: good life is a introduction to stoic philosophy which is actually the underpinnings of much of what we've talked about through this podcast it's a great way to get started if you find that a little too long i'll recommend the manual which is um the highest packed um wisdom per page of any book i've ever written or read in my entire life you can read it in about 45 minutes it's from uh, 2000 years ago. And it's incredible. Uh, the manual. It's also a book about Stoic philosophy. Um, on this topic about the meaning of life, um, Viktor Frankl's book, I think actually is called The Meaning of Life. Is it um, a man's search for meaning? Man's search for meaning. That's right. Yeah. Was another one of those books where you Lots of these struggles we talk about, right? Like he takes it out to a much bigger place. Like, hey, imagine you're in a concentration camp and he, as he actually was. Yeah. And how do you find meaning in that place? Wonderful book to read. Um, Eric from. Um, is uh, one of my favorite authors of all time. I've read a ton of his books, but if I pick just one, I'd say probably uh, Escape from Freedom was one of those books that really opened my mind to this idea of like, be careful what you wish for when you get all the freedom in the world. It is not as easy as it it looks psychologically in particular and what happens to societies when we try to run away from the choices and the freedoms that we've been giving. Um, a, really, uh, a really great book. So, Um, Yeah, the Stoics and and Eric from are are two good places to start that connect to every single topic we've talked about on this podcast. So I'd start with those.
0: Awesome. We'll put links in the show notes as to where the listeners can find those books and as well as where you can find DHH's books uh, because they are phenomenal. And David, what's the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis?
1: Oh... That's a good question. I think just, um, I I do a lot of introspection of thinking of like, am I spending my time well? Is another one of those big stoic questions that they focus so much on, that life is long enough if you live it well. And part of living it well as we go to is like, how am I spending my time? I'll frequently do these one week reviews where I'm like, how is this week spent? And break it down and like, do you know what? Do I want to spend next week like that? Or do I have to change something? This constant mode of iteration, not for optimization, not for squeezing everything out of it, but from that core sense of meaning and satisfaction. Like, am I spending enough time with my kids? Are we doing the right kinds of activities where we feel like we're really connecting over something? Um, Having that retrospection and looking yourself in the mirror and like, am I spending my time well? Not in a search of deferment. Right. I should just sit. I'm not interested in like, well, I'm, I'm doing this now. And then in like 20 years, I can retire. And I no, no, no.
0: Now. Right. Man, that's awesome. What's the biggest way that you elevate others around you, David?
1: I try to share what I've learned along the way, and I hope that it can plant some seeds in such a way that I might not convince someone right here and right now. In fact, I'd say that happens very rarely. Um, the best you can usually hope for is to plant a seed in someone's head so that you're not convincing them right now. But in six months, when they face just the right situation, they look at uh, something that's happening in their life, they go like, oh, actually, now it sort of makes sense. And at the best moment, it then invites someone to start pulling the thread. Oh, he, he said something about like uh, uh, no deferment. The life is long enough. Oh, it, that was the Stoics, wasn't it? Maybe they'll pick up Guide to the Good Life and they'll read it and they go like, "Oh, holy shit!" My outlook on life is now profoundly different. Yeah.
0: Man, you've made a huge impact on so many people today, David. Thank you so much. I want to acknowledge you for continuing to give back for not deferring, you know, the good life and the beauty in life and and setting that example for so many people, David, this has been an outstanding conversation. I I just want to thank you so much. I want to invite the listeners to engage with David on Twitter at DHH. David, where else can the listeners find you across the internet?
1: DHH.dk. My personal website has links to every book I've written and podcasts I've been on and everything else I'm doing. It's a great place to start.
0: Outstanding. David, until next time, thank you so much for being on Elevate. Thanks for having
1: me. This is great.
0: Oh my goodness. Elevate Nation. What just happened? DHH dropping tremendous wisdom on Elevate Nation and me. And wow, I'm just, I'm grateful to be reminded that it's not about deferring our dreams. It's about living those dreams today. It's about stepping up and saying, look, you know what, let's question everything that's been given to us. Let's question every piece of conventional wisdom, whether it's the way we work, whether it's the way we interact with other people, whether it's the way that we design our companies or so on and so forth. I mean, what else should we question? And I'm so grateful for this conversation. I'm so grateful that you tuned in and listened all the way through because there is so much value in understanding these philosophies and integrating them within your own business approach, within your own life, the way that you lead your family, the way that you lead your organization, the way that you consider your own commitment to long-term excellence, because maybe if you're thinking short-term, perhaps there's something to be said in terms of the enjoyment, the fulfillment of life, if you commit to that long-term. And I think that there's a lot of value in terms of how that integrates within your business as well, from a compound interest perspective And, you know, just from an enjoyment perspective, I just, I really appreciated this. I want to encourage you to re-listen to this show because repetition is the mother of all skill. If you listen again, you learn twice as much. There's going to be something that you miss. There's going to be a few things that you miss. You're also going to further ingrain whether it's philosophies, business strategy approaches in such a greater capacity. So I want to encourage you to re-listen. I also want to encourage you to have a dialogue with someone else this weekend, I want to challenge you to sit down with one person, whether it's for five minutes, 10 minutes, you know, whether you're going to dinner with somebody, you have coffee with someone and just say, you know what, I've been thinking about some philosophies lately that I'd like to, to uh, integrate within my own life and within my own business. And I'd like to hear your thoughts and here's what I learned. And so, you know, we just learn so much more when we share with other people. So definitely share this episode with a friend, but also have a discussion. And I want to encourage you to identify what's your top takeaway? What's your number one takeaway from this podcast? Put that in a note, jot it down on a posted note, um, you know, put it in your phone, wherever you want to put it. What's your number one takeaway? If you want to be an overachiever, go to two or three takeaways or distinctions. And ultimately the most important part is to take massive, massive action. Until next time, Elevate Nation, thank you truly so much for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate.